I'm Alon Ben-Meir. Welcome to On the Issues. My guest is Kelly Burkell, right? You got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, an attorney and research fellow at the Center on Terrorism at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Most recently, Kelly served as National Security Fellow at Fordham Law School Center on National Security and is a graduate of NYU School of Law and Burnett College. Thank you so much for taking the time, Kelly, to be here. So Thank you for having me. You know, it's my pleasure. Thank you. So, you know, I, I recently read a paper that you wrote, which is extremely uh, comprehensive, and, and, um, uh, and I really, really enjoyed it, about uh, your take on radicalization and how the United States, the laws of the United States apply to individuals who are a charge of extremism and a violent extremism. What was, yeah, your main focus was on that aspect, what it is that you wanted actually to convey to someone who wants to listen to this. I would say the main points that I was hoping to convey through the paper are that there's a growing focus in the United States and elsewhere on countering violent extremism and um, what's now being called preventing and countering violent extremism. And a lot of that focus has been on the prevention area, which of course is, is critical in having community-wide initiatives that are uh, CVE relevant. But in addition, I wanted to just bring a focus to the criminal justice area and how we can incorporate some similar principles there in terms of once somebody is already intersecting with the criminal justice system, whether they've come on the radar of law enforcement uh, as a suspect um, or through a referral, or whether they're actually at a post-conviction phase where they have been convicted of an extremist crime, uh, there are a lot of initiatives that can be implemented that are not being implemented on a systematic basis. So although we do have some... You mean so initiative in terms of prevention? Yes, exactly. Prevention okay, yeah. in terms of if this person um, has not committed any crime, preventing a future crime, and if they, they have committed a crime, preventing recidivism. And, and I mean, when we talk about preventing a future crime, of course, we have to be very respectful of civil, civil liberties, and we're not the thought police, and uh, we're talking about voluntary programs for intervention, but it's more from the framework of making resources available so that in a number of the instances that we're familiar with recently, a suspect was on the radar of law enforcement, but because they hadn't committed a crime, the investigation was closed, and that person later went on to commit an attack. Right. So the paper addresses resources that could be available to communities and families and law enforcement in those types of situations so that the case is not completely dropped or abandoned uh, in all instances, just to give everybody more tools in the toolkit. So, so, I mean, based on my understanding of this, we're talking about the prevention that is, is going to require when a person such as this is leaning, perhaps, to committing a, a terrorist attack, but he has not committed that. That's exactly what you just said. So what sort of surveillance? That is, you know, because this is exactly what, what is happening. They have not been, in my view, allocating enough resources to cover 
these many peoples. And I think my understanding is the FBI, for example, has on their list hundreds, if not thousands, of would-be terrorists, but they haven't committed any crime. And my understanding uh, from talking to some people from the NYPD, they know, but they cannot apprehend them. They cannot, because they haven't committed anything as yet. But they are also saying, we don't have that much resources to really follow and survey and make sure that this person is not going to commit any crime. So how do we deal with that? That's that's exactly right. I, there are the, by the last uh, statistics that the FBI announced, which were last year, there were over a thousand yeah. open investigations into homegrown violent extremists, and I believe the majority of those were ISIS related. And then, um, as you said, I mean, there are hundreds in in New York alone. Yes. Yeah of open investigations. And so uh, surveillance in every one of those cases is not practical, it's not economical, and and not always needed. But um, to have community-based resources available to help people for counseling and um, other social services, and also a network that won't necessarily involve law enforcement if there isn't, if a crime is not imminent, but where professionals will know about their legal duty to warn and will know when a threat is imminent. Um, I think these kinds of resources could really enhance what's available so that hopefully we wouldn't have to see so many cases like Omar Mateen in Orlando, where he had been looked at by the FBI. Uh, Tamerlan Sarnayev had been looked at uh, by the FBI as well. And even the um, the bomber who planted bombs in New York and New Jersey right, yeah, yeah. Um, last year ha- had also been looked at. So in, o- in all of these cases, who knows if additional resources would have helped, if law enforcement would have made a referral, but it's possible. Yeah, but this, what happens, what that, uh, my understanding is that one thing they've been shying away from doing is actually contacting the families. The family of such a would-be terrorist, a would-be violent extremist, and concerning are concerned about well, if they speak to the family, to the father or the mother, well, they may or may not alert the son or the daughter about it. But some cases, actually, the father, I, I probably you remember the case where the father himself called the authority and said, "My son is." Do you remember that? That that was that bomber. The um. Uh, New York and New Jersey bomber um, Ahmad Khan Rahami. That's right. That's, that's right, Rahami. Yeah. And so here, here is a good, a good example. What if the authorities? That is, in this case, they wasn't in New York, right? Yes. Yeah. If, but they did not contact the family in advance, even though he was under surveillance. So in the cases like this, when actually the father volunteered subsequently, volunteered. You know, before the person they committed, then there must be a way by which to reach out for these families as well. So how do you reconcile the concern over not reaching out because they are afraid that the family, the father, and the mother would would let would not, the son, well, you're being investigated, being surveyed um, after. So so that's one of the predicament I understand. Whether the police is facing and the FBI is facing, and that that raises another important question too, which is um, trust between communities 
and law enforcement so that if, say, parents or other friends or family wanted to make a recommendation, they might have somewhere to turn without necessarily thinking that they're going to get their loved one imprisoned for 20 years, for example, on a material support conviction. And so right now we have sort of an all or nothing situation where another case like what you're mentioning was the case of Adam Shafi, whose uh, father in California referred him to law enforcement, brought him to the attention of law enforcement initially, saying that he could be um, radicalized, he could be falling prey to an extremist group. And um, subsequently, the son was arrested and is uh, basically in a, in a solitary confinement uh, type of situation now. And the father, the most recent press that I've seen on this, the father is saying that he would recommend to parents in a situ- similar situation, don't go Not to do that to anymore, because th- this is the problem. That is, when you have something, an incident like this, when the authorities go to the other extreme and incarcerate the individual, when in fact he hasn't as yet committed any crime, and exactly what you've been addressing in part in your paper. Am I right? You, you did speak about this to that. Yes. Yeah. And, and then obviously this is preventing others from notifying the authorities that my son is leaning toward committing act of terror or, or you know. So, so the, the problem that we have facing now is what do we do in a situation like this? What is the mechanism? So do you, if, we, if, it's volun- if they volunteer and they are afraid that the son is going to be mistreated or unduly punished, this is a problem for the parents. On the other hand, if they don't, it is entirely possible that he or she will commit this kind of crime and perhaps the punishment will be even more severe. So the parents here are trying to weigh what to do, you know. Albeit these are not, uh, you know, there are not too many such cases, not by the thousand, but they do exist. Is anyone take one terrorist activity, you know, to to cause such a huge damage? So even one of a hundred is going to matter. And how do you know? What would you do? What would you recommend to authorities to do under these kind of circumstances? I've been thinking about it. What shall we do? How shall we address this issue? It's an excellent question, and right now I think that I imagine that the federal government in in various capacities is grappling with that issue. And earlier there were shared responsibility committees, which was an initiative set up by the FBI uh, as an attempt to deal with this kind of situation, and it was supposed to be a multidisciplinary, multi-resource, community-based committee where cases like this could be referred my understanding is that at least under that name that initiative is no longer going forward partly because i think people felt that it was overly securitized and um, that it had to be uh, more grassroots and and more community-based but something along those lines does seem something that would be a, a multidisciplinary resource where the exact parameters with government with law enforcement would have to be drawn very carefully um, in terms of, and, and we have to distinguish between programs that are purely prevention, that are much more community-based and more general, as opposed to programs that are more targeted toward for particular individuals who, as you were uh, mentioning to me earlier, will have experienced different factors that will contribute to why they may, may be heading down a path 
toward violent extremism or considering that path. So a more targeted approach would deal with the factors relevant to that specific person, like counseling and, and social work. Yeah. But I, I just want to add in that in addition, um, the I think an, another related but slightly different issue that comes up in this arena is applying these principles of preventing future violence to cases where there already has been a conviction. And the principles can come in in terms of sentencing. Um, as recently, Judge Michael Davis in Minnesota uh, began a new initiative where he had assessments of defendants completed by an expert, Daniel Kohler, and in some cases, uh, probation officers, I believe, to determine their level of, of commitment to violent extremism and, and use that as a factor in, in sentencing and determining their sentences. And then also in prison uh, programs that would be along the lines of rehabilitation um, so that people don't get further radicalized in prison. And uh, last but not least, after release, post-incarceration yeah. programs to reintegrate people into society in productive roles. But, but be, before we even we go to rehabilitation, after a person, when the person is in prison, or after he or she leaves the prison, what is the, I mean, my, my feeling is, was that when a parent or the authorities suspect somebody who may, be, who may be planning or have the tendency to join such a group, why not start the process of rehabilitation? What I've been thinking, and when I talk about it, I say, if you are suspect, instead of killing this person and putting him in jail, like that's been done, and the parent now saying, we wanted you to know what's going on, <clears throat> but you put him in jail, and they're not telling other parents, well, don't do that, because that's, that's going to be the consequence. Why then the authority should be doing is, this person is as such, the parents are notifying, or even without the notification of the, of the parent, they will get this person and begin the process of rehabilitation rather than incarceration and putting in prison. And, and then, from my understanding, that is not happening. Mm -hmm. That is not happening. So they know this person has a tendency and not going and say, well, we know you haven't done anything yet. We feel that this is, you have the tendency perhaps, you have, we're going to put you in some kind of program and begin that kind of process as a preventive, preventive program. And we talk about prevention, I mean, this is one, one area, I think, where prevention can take place. We can talk about other means of prevention, for example, in school setting, uh, in a mask setting. What role the authorities can play in order to, to preempt? The idea is, from my perspective, is a preempting not waiting to take this type of action in order to prevent the person from continuing the path to extremism and eventually commit act of extremism, violent extremism, yeah. Right. I, I think there is um, a model where you can look at CVE, and I think you're, you're um, touching upon this, where you can break it into separate steps, looking at where, based on where the, the person is in their... Um, process. So there's, there's on the first step would be purely prevention when you're not dealing with anybody who's necessarily expressed any uh, interest in violent extremism. It's just purely a resource to 
maybe counter offer positive uh, counter narratives. It's it's just general building community resilience. Then you can come to a place which is I think where you are focusing now, which is generally referred to as intervention or targeted interventions where the person has shown some interest, possibly some movement in that direction, but has not committed a crime and therefore hasn't done anything illegal, cannot be arrested, cannot be compelled to participate in a program. Um, And then third, you would come to the charging context where someone is suspected of a crime, but you could still implement some of these initiatives perhaps as part of a a plea agreement or or something like that, which, which really brings you to the last steps, which are rehabilitation and reintegration, where someone has been convicted of a crime and now you're giving post-conviction resources that will... But it's, in in my opinion, all of it's prevention, because even yes, when it's post-conviction, yeah. yeah. you're preventing future yeah. crimes, preventing future violence, and promoting public safety. Yeah. In terms of what resources, what can be done at the intervention stage, I think, you know, that's that's... We need to look at different programs um, that have existed. We need to look at evidence and and build programs that are um, supported by the research that exists and and preferably build upon community-based programs that actually exist already. There are many great uh, programs that are in communities that deal with other kinds of um, violence, maybe gang prevention violence, and we can look at models like those and, and build our programs from there. But the key will be devoting the resources to be able to do that. Yeah, you know, recently I had an opportunity to speak to three uh, educators who came from Kosovo in this program with the State Department. And my focus was, in my discussion with them, was education. That is, what a a teacher, uh, an educator, in fact, can do in the classroom setting when they have, when they notice that one of the students, or more than one or two, are rigidly uh, disruptive, uh, leaning to, you know, um, they have signs that they are rebellious. And what it is that they can do within the classroom setting without necessarily notifying the authorities that we have somebody like this, we need to take care of them. So from how I saw it is that here a set of things that an educator can do in order to mitigate, you know, to deal with this kind of problem with this type of individual. Have you have you been looking into this as well? It's something I actually would like to look into, but I haven't spent a lot of time looking into it. I think it raises interesting questions in terms of youth and privacy rights and, and so forth. And um, obviously there are other protections that come into play when you're dealing with minors, but it is a very important question I think an excellent question and something that is is part of this whole area that we do need to look at. Yeah, because from my understanding, again, I have uh, looking into researching this, it's not being done in any methodical, systematic way in schools where some school is necessary in various areas, including the United States, in Europe and elsewhere. That is, uh, sometimes in poor countries like Kosovo, there's a problem of resources because the teacher can do so much. But the person, the student, need, for example, some outside service, like should be seeing a psychologist, a psychiatrist, and get that that individual engaged in some other activities that require, again, some more funding. So when you have poor community, 
where they cannot afford that kind of uh, treatment to prevent this individual from pursuing the, the path of extremists, this is becoming a problem. So the, and here, you know, I don't think in countries like this, they are able to, unless the reason, in fact, why in Kosovo there are so many, relatively speaking, uh, the number of those young extremists is extremely high and relative to other, other Muslim or Arab countries because of the problem of wealth or of poverty in, in, that, in that, that state. But one of the measures, in my view, that if we want to prevent, you know, extremist, violent extremists from actually committing, so we have to look beyond what we have here because where the root causes is perhaps someplace else. It could be in Kosovo, it could be any other country in the Middle East. And we need to take, we need to think in terms of out of the box, what it is can we do to channel some kind of funding where it's needed in order to, to conduct that kind of preventive activities from, so in order to make sure that such an individual perhaps be stopped before he or she commit a kind of crime. And I don't see that happening. I did the focus, we were in Europe, for example, and I talked to many people there, and I haven't heard one person who's saying, yeah, actually we are supporting this type of a school in this country or that country because we feel there's this kind of activities going on. What what do you do about these kind of things? You know. So are you are you mentioning that in terms of schools or generally in terms of community resources? Well, the schools is one of the community resources. You know, you can talk about you can go to the imam in the mosque and and find out who do you feel is leaning or so and do something about it. There's a role for the imam to play. There's a role for the educator to play. There's a role. There's all kind of people who come in contact with such an individual that they can play without necessarily involving the police, the authorities. Right. Well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I, I think Europe does have some some interesting models. Um, in in Denmark, in Denmark and elsewhere, there and there's a new uh, center in in uh, Montreal as well. And I, I do think we need to spend time. There are also in in a lot of Muslim majority countries there have been programs uh, for disengagement and intervention. And fortunately, in the United States, we haven't had as much of a a problem with uh, homegrown violent extremism, and we haven't had to historically have as much of an effort devoted um, to these kind of programs. But as you said earlier, we now it's been a growing problem. There are upwards of a thousand investigations. And, and even though ISIS has lost and is losing territory and isn't recruiting as many foreign fighters, their online efforts don't appear to have slowed down. And so this is this is a continuing problem and, and will be a problem also as convicted extremists are released from prison. We've had um, about 115 ISIS cases by the last count. Um, yeah. A majority of those have resulted in convictions. Um, some are not resolved yet, but um, many. The average sentence as of about a year ago was measured at nine point two years. But of course, we know that some people's sentences are are two years, and some people. Uh, one person in Minnesota, Abdullahi Yusuf, was sentenced to time served. So people are are coming out. And they need resources. Yusuf, fortunately, is, is benefiting from new resources that are being developed. Well, they're also not as rehabilitated as they could have been. 
I mean, that's what I think is also happening, that are released from prison, but then by and large left to, to, to their own devices. That's what I understand the situation is. When you mention ISIS, yes, it's true that they are recruiting less, especially online, in terms of their advocacy. But as I see it, even though they will be eventually defeated, I think they will be defeated in Syria as well as in Iraq. It's a question of when, as a body, as an entity, will be defeated. But what they have done in the interim, they have established cells just about everywhere. In the Middle East, in Europe, and in a, some many of these cells that are right now are dormant. They have not been active, and they are. They will be active. They can act. Uh, become more active on their own. They don't need to have an order coming from some authority from the top people, echelon of ISIS. They will begin to act on their own. So what they have done is losing ground in Iraq and Syria, but they're shifting their emphasis on spreading. Because the ideology itself is alive, and they're going to die with the with their destruction in, in in Syria and in Iraq. So here the question is: What again? The authorities have been questioning and find what what are we doing, for example, to try to detect these these uh, you know sleeping cells that exist in so many different countries now? And it's a question of time when they will just commit an act without even much planning. Let us assume, for example, the guy who just ran over so many people in London. Well, ISIS claimed responsibility. We are not really sure whether, in fact, he was necessarily affiliated or not affiliated with ISIS, but they're claiming the responsibility. So here you have someone who may not have any connection with anyone else, who may not have cooperated with anyone else, but he acted on his own because he was indoctrinated in in one form or another. And this is, I think, this phenomenon, I think, is going to grow rather than diminish. I, I think that's exactly right. I think, I think what you're talking about is the phenomenon of homegrown violent extremists where yeah. social media has changed the dynamics and technology and people are, you don't need to be a member of uh, an extremist group per se, but people exactly, are inspired yeah. and motivated online and can credit their actions to a group or, or claim inspiration by a group. And sometimes even groups that may hate each other, sometimes people are inspired by multiple groups that in their own locations are, are not getting along with each other. But nonetheless, somebody in the US or in Europe may be drawing inspiration from those groups and may use that as a basis for their uh, criminal activity. Yeah. So, so let me just uh, go back to your paper because uh, it was so impressive. <laughs> Thank you. I uh, wanted to just take take the 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 how we are applying the laws and what what are some of the corrective measures in our how we are applying the laws against these individuals, be that before or after they commit an act of terror, a violent act. What would you recommend the differently the, the authorities they, they take different kind of approach beyond what is being done today from a legal perspective? I think that um, Judge Michael Davis in Minnesota in U.S. Federal District Court has been a pioneer in this. He has developed a program on his own with support from the U.S. attorney who recently resigned uh, upon President Trump's request 
But in any event, Judge Davis has designed a new program that addresses the question that you're asking or begins to address it. But what I would say is that instead of having each federal court on its own to design these kind of programs, it's very important to have guidance um, that the courts can follow based on evidence and based on best practices so that they don't each have to forge their own path. So Judge Davis did have the radicalization assessments to assist him with sentencing, to give him additional information. But is there any effort going on right now to coordinate between the various, uh, various courts, various judges, so many of them around? It's a very good question. I, I know of efforts in various districts that are occurring um, where or people where are advocating in different districts for efforts to occur. Um, and there are cases that are currently pending where these kind of efforts seem particularly relevant. I'm not aware at the judicial level of an effort to coordinate um, whether I imagine that the Bureau of Prisons and um, other uh, judicial and legislative policymakers are all looking at this. And, and certainly um, we know that the uh, CVE task force was established under President Obama, as well as the Office of Community Partnerships, to try to coordinate uh, these types of initiatives, not limited to the judicial system, but, but generally speaking. And it will be very interesting to see what happens with that under the new administration. And part of that will be there was a $10 million grant opportunity funded for CVE. And that money was awarded to 31 community organizations. But it's unclear how that will proceed, how it will go forward. And following the, um, there was a Reuters exclusive article that came out uh, in February indicating that the administration was considering changing the name of the Countering Violent Extremism Initiatives to Countering Islamic Extremism or Countering Violent Ex Islamic Extremism. And which administration? Trump? Under under Trump, yes, under President Trump. Yeah, well, Trump. there was an outcry about that. You know, many Muslim countries and the Turks in particular were saying that is absolutely unacceptable, specifically when Merkel <laughs> used that, uh, you know, Islamic extremism. And he was saying, well, that is not limited to Islam. There are extremists of all manners and kind coming from all over. Well, at this point now, four of the organizations that were awarded grant money that, that applied for and competed for these funds have now declined the funds and said, no, thank you, because in part because of the concern that it would be difficult for them to work with their communities and, and get have the trust of their communities when they're receiving funding under a, a philosophy and a policy that seems to single out Islam and not encompass other forms of radical extremism as well. But the, you know, the, the problem is, you know, uh, the problem is, there's, uh, if we, I, I asked myself the question, okay, why is it 95%, even more, perhaps more than 95% of acts of terrorism, extremists, um, they are coming from, uh, originated or from individuals, at least from background, that are Muslim, they are Muslims. So there is a perception that a natural association of any act of terror is coming from somebody who is a Muslim, will have a Muslim background. In fact, every single act of terror took place in the United States 
committed by an individual who was actually a Muslim. By recently, the several of them. Well, I mean, I think there's. I, been I'm a... not trying to label them as such. I'm just saying the perception has been created is as such. I see. Yeah, the perception is because I do not support the notion that extremism is only coming from the Muslim world. I'm not saying that, not in the least. But the perception is since the majority of these activities are taken are committed by Muslim, so the perception is. Like the Israelis look at the Palestinian thing as a terrorist, and the Palestinians look at the Israelis as a as a, as a as a soldier with a gun. That's how they see each other. That's how they perceive each other. The same thing what happens in how do we perceive we connect as Muslims to extremism. But from a historical perspective, this is what I've been thinking and been writing about recently. From a historical perspective, you can create that linkage. That is, why is it they are as such? Again, I'm not saying this is exclusively because there were so many different kind of terrorists over, over so many years. How do we disabuse the, the individuals, or the many, the majority, who feel this is, this is the source and this is what we have to deal, just exactly what President Trump has articulated recently? Well, you ask so many good questions. That is the question. How do we do that? And, but, you know, it's not, it, it may be the public perception or, or some portion of the public perception. Of course, that's not supported. There are new America, there's new America data that show that since September 11th, I believe the latest numbers are around 95 deaths from uh, what they refer to as jihadist extremism in the U.S. and about 51 from far right-wing extremism, and I think they cited about five from far left. I don't have the numbers in front of me, so yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry if those aren't exact, but that's that's close to um, the recent numbers. And of course, you know, only this week we had an incident in New York City where um, somebody, there was a hate crime, uh, which could later be uh, classified as terrorism. I don't think we know enough information yet, but somebody came to New York to kill a black man, and, and that's what he did. Yeah, this guy, this white supremacist who went to this church, is it? Where he called, he killed five black people just recently. Uh, this young fellow, just maybe a month ago. He, maybe he was 19 or 20 years old. You don't mean Dylan Roof in, in South Carolina? Probably, I don't remember the name. Yeah, yeah so, he did, you know, he, oh. but you're right. I mean, but people but so don't there look have at the been statistics. these these high profile incidents. Yeah, yeah. But you know, the one group who who doesn't, um, I don't think who, at least um, as of a recent survey from some scholars um, at Duke, they surveyed law enforcement and found that law enforcement, local law enforcement officers around the country, were were very concerned about white supremacists and about sovereign citizens and the uh, you know some some of the what's considered the far right wing extremist movements. And at that time, at least, they were more concerned about that than about any kind of jihadist or threat of yeah. Islamism in yeah. their community. Yeah. So it's interesting to look at that because they're the people day to day, you know, on the streets dealing. So there are there are a whole range of threats. And in some ways, there we need different approaches. But in some ways, I think we can learn from approaches in dealing with different threats and use that information to benefit a more holistic Yeah, effort. but you notice, though, you notice that in the United States, there are more of that, you know, white supremacists, and you don't see the same phenomenon, interestingly enough, in Britain or France or in some European countries. There are these acts, by and large, being committed by Muslims, which is an interesting phenomenon. 
we have here um, not as many but but interesting that we do have different kind of phenomena that have been manifesting itself with white supremacists who are committing this kind of act of terror where you don't find as many of similar nature in the European community. Why do you think that's the case? Well, we do have a different uh, threat landscape here, but interestingly in Europe, some of the initiatives to counter violent extremism now that are looking at uh, jihadist extremism have come out of the efforts, the exit programs that deal with white supremacists and other other issues. So there is a history of that, of course, in, in Europe, in, in Germany, and in Scandinavia as well. And in fact, uh, Daniel Kohler, who is working on the uh, Minnesota ISIS cases and, and has been consulted for different cases in the U.S. Um, for jihadist-inspired terrorism, has, I believe, had his... At least he worked earlier um, yeah, yeah. in Germany in exit programs that really focused on on white supremacists. So, but in terms of uh, the cultural specific cultural reasons as to why one form of extremism may thrive in in one location versus another, it's it's an excellent sociological question. Yeah, I mean, this is just an observation. I mean, yeah. Uh, because I've, I've been seeing this and wondering, this is why is it? And obviously, I think your, your uh, take on it is absolutely the right. That is, we have a, we have a different culture here. It's a different pattern, uh, yes. Well, anyway, you know, this was really wonderful. I really, really appreciate it for you taking the time. Thank you so yeah, much. I, I enjoyed being here. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you again. And I think what you have... Uh, Covered is very important. Most people just do not know the intricacies of how we are, we are here in the United States have been dealing with this uh, phenomenon. So thanks again, Kelly. Thank you. It's wonderful. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.